Hi folks, this is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Sound check. Sound check. Check. Check, check one. Sound check. Sound check. check two. Check uh, 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 Take your hearing aid out, Brian. Sorry. Sorry God. about that. I'm uh, putting it down there. Uh, mm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. Brian. Brian! Huh? Put your hearing aid back in! Uh, did we start already? Oh, God, do it again. <coughs> Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm. Oh, God, I had a minute ago. Eric. Oh, Eric Brickmont. There you go. And I am Brian Moriarty. Yes. You are. Mm. And um, on this uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, old, very old style of music. Things that we thought were very interesting when we were young. Yes, because that's what people want to hear about. So we're going to tell them. Did- uh, what the hell is it called? Tonight, we are going to talk about the history of dubstep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dubstep was a very unique form of music. I remember in my youth when we would go to the clubs and the first thing you'd hear was It was a good time. Oh, yes, 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 of course, yeah. Until, unfortunately, the Third World War, and then that just went out of style. Whoever thought it would have come out of Luxembourg? I know, I know. Well, it's all right, though, because it did come back. You remember when it came back? I did. In the Fourth World War? I did. Yeah. Werewolves. Werewolves. We never saw it coming. No. Again, out of Luxembourg. Who would have thought? But dubstep was instrumental in winning that war where we used it as a form of weapon. We did discover that werewolves were actually weakened by the dubstep. Yes. I think it had to do with something being silver involved with the speakers. I don't remember all the details, but it was very interesting at the time. Hmm, yes. Speaking of the things that I don't remember, do you remember... A one-year anniversary? No. Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I do know my name. (laughs) We do indeed, and we are not 88 years old in the future. (laughs) Uh, that's probably one of the most fun we've had doing a cold open, I think. Yeah, that was great. Sir Brian and Norman decide that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> um, so, yeah, episode 52. 52? Fifty 
52. And how many weeks are in a year? 52. 52, which would make this? Episode 52. Actually, no, I'm sorry. This is not 52. I, I, this that is a lie. This is actually episode 51. But we took a break this year. So we're, this is not our actual 52nd episode. It's just our uh, episode that lines up with our one-year anniversary. You lied to me, Brian. This is not a good way to start our anniversary. I'm sorry. Can we just let it go, please? It's a trust thing, Brian. It's a trust thing. Mm -hmm. How am I going to trust you now? Buy you a nice watch. All right. See? Yeah. You see how that works, folks? Yeah. Yeah. When someone's upset at you, you just buy them things. Yeah. Watches. Fixes all problems. Watches have been fixing relationships for thousands of years. Even before they could tell time. Even before watches existed. uh, This is amazing. No idea what it does, but I forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) Where should I put this? I think you put it on your wrist. Oh, okay. Good. Thank God. I was going to put it somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) That would have made telling time awkward, particularly at church. But anyhow. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, here we are. It's it's hard to believe that it's been a year, but uh, it has. And listeners, there's many of you out there who have been with us pretty much every step of the way. Well, let's be honest, though. Because we actually front-loaded our podcast originally. We, because I was doing a, a play at the time, we recorded like four episodes before we even launched uh, Nerdonomy. So we, our first month was kind of just like autopilot, just getting the episodes out there. We've actually been recording for over a year at right. this point. Right. But this is a time where we get to actually recognize, for you guys, our audience, the one-year anniversary of what Neuronomy has become. And it is continuing to become. Is we're, continuing we're, to become, exactly. growing exponentially at this point. We're expanding in ways that we didn't even think we would be at in a year from now, and or a year from then, I should say. Uh, and I'm just, I'm really excited about what the, this coming year has got for us. Yeah, year two. Year two. And the, the thing that I think is really funny is when we were starting out doing this, we were brainstorming for what episodes we'd do, because we knew we were never going to run out of content. <laughs> right. Because history is just, it just, it's always giving us new information. But Eric, just one night, went on like... So for those who, who don't work with Eric, Eric uh, is brilliant, but he has moments where he becomes a complete savant. And what I mean by that is just like he will just go crazy in detail about something and then just kind of leave it alone. Like there are times where he has done entire videos that we've been demoing for prototypes. He's done built entire board games <laughs> within uh, within one night. And one of the examples is he drafted like a hundred episodes of ideas for our show. And I thought we had we were getting ready to run out of episode titles. And I was looking at that document a week ago, two ago, and we have not even gotten halfway through. Uh, we had, we are barely scratching the surface because for a couple reasons. One, we've we've been putting it on the back burner. But two, we've had so many things that we've come up with, just been inspired by our us doing the podcast as it is that have come up instead. Absolutely. Those. <clears throat> Including and also our listener feedback, which of has course. been instrumental in some of the greatest episodes that we've done in this past year. So we've got some really great topics that we're going to do in the next year. I promise you we're going to get to Asia. <laughs> yeah. We will. We promise to do that. Uh, I think we need to tap, tap into some American history because we've talked about it. But maybe we need to talk about some of that stuff, too. Cause some more specifics. It's important to know the history of our country as well. Absolutely. So we've got... Lots of exciting things. But before we even get to there... Well, I, I just have to say, yeah. we cannot forget perhaps one of the most important topics, which is going to be Luxembourg, because we have to be ready. <laughs> we do. We have to be ready. And history studies will show that there is a surprising correlation between lycanthropy and the Luxem- 
Borgians. Bergians? Berg. Look, if you're from Luxembourg, please tell us what you call yourself. <laughs> what is your demonym? Please. <laughs> we want to know <laughs> desperately. <laughs> so we're really looking forward to doing year two, but let's focus on tonight. First thing is we've got some great feedback we want to share, right? Absolutely. This week in listener feedback. All right. The uh, first one comes from Cam. Uh, oh, who good is, old Cam. We've, good old Cam. She oh, yes. has written to us in the past. She's from the Philippines. Or has family from the Philippines. But either way, uh, awesome. Hello, lovely people. It's Cam again. And I just thought through listening to the latest Nerds on History podcast. And I found it delightful. Well, you are a delight for listening to us. Since I drink both coffee and tea, and I find the former vital in getting my day started correctly. I'd just like to add something that you didn't cover in the podcast. Do tell, Cam. Do tell. And she does. Vietnam and the Philippines are well-known coffee-growing and coffee-drinking regions. Makes sense. Tropical climates. <clears throat> right. Equatorial. Very close to the, the equator. Uh, Vietnam and some parts of the Philippines grow the Robusta variety, as I was talking about in the last episode. But the Philippines, in the Philippines, rather, we grow another variety called Liberica, famous in the areas of the Batangas and Cavite. Interesting. I hmm. did not know there was a third species of, uh, of coffee bean. That's actually very interesting to know. This variety was brought in to replace the Arabica plants in the latter when they were hit by the coffee rust in the 1890s. Since the Liberica variety was hardier than the Arabica, and in fact, when coffee rust hit the plantations in Indonesia during the same period, uh, it was cuttings from the Liberica plants in the Philippines that helped prop up the coffee-growing industry there. So they had to most probably cross-pollinate, I imagine, with existing strains of coffee bean, it sounds like. As a result, uh, Liberica is still grown in some areas of central and eastern Java today. Liberica is quite popular here in the Philippines, where it's called uh, Kipeng Baraco. And if we can get it, we prefer it over Arabica coffee, which we tend to think tastes rather weak. Interesting. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Baraco tastes and smells somewhat pungent, which can be off-putting to people who are used to Arabica coffee. But if you like dark, strong coffee, then Baraco is perfect. I'm not a coffee expert, but most of the Baraco I've tasted, regardless of who the grower or roaster is, uh, has a delicious peppery aftertaste. Interesting. You wouldn't expect pepper and coffee to go well together, but I'm sure it does. Though it actually does make sense, though, because Indonesian and Southeast Asian coffees tend to have that kind of uh, spicy quality to them when they're roasted. I have no idea how you would get Baraco in the United States. Maybe order it online. But if you can get your hands on uh, Starbucks's Capavinta blend, that's a good place to start. It's not as bold as regular Baraco, or Baraco Light, as a friend of mine uh, once called it. <laughs> the coffee from Starbucks, that is. Um, but it does have hints of spices that are prevalent in Baraco. Also, what are your opinions on Kopi Luwak uh, Kivet tea, or coffee, which I have no idea. So, there's My your opinion. opinion is I have no opinion. Illuminate us, please. We'd love to hear it. I've tasted it before, and while the taste uh, isn't all that different from any other kind of coffee I've had, it doesn't make my stomach feel overly acidic, which is a good thing because I react badly to coffee on an empty stomach. Anyway, sorry again for the long message, and I look forward to the next episode. Well, thank you again, Cam. And you know, this brings up a really good, interesting point, because I realized in our haste to get our coffee and tea episode out, we didn't talk about brewed coffee at all, which is easily the most common form of coffee in the United States. It's been around for hundreds of years, first, though, in the percolation form, 
which most people don't even know what a percolator is. They just knew something from the 1940s. No, 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 no. It was actually from anywhere from the the 18 or sorry the 18th century, I believe, is when it was originally invented. And just the idea is the filter is in the middle of the pot, and by causing the water to boil through expansion, it just basically the water spits up and goes out, and it just kind of goes in a cycle of moving the water above the filter and getting the. It's. I don't think I'm really describing it all that that well, but it's basically like making a hot water fountain. Of, mm. of coffee. See, I always thought it was some sort of apparatus that uh, distributed beneficial situations, you know, things that were perks. Oh, here's another damn pun. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey. We're celebrating our one year anniversary. I'm going to I'm going to pun it up tonight. So don't you don't you judge me. Judge. <laughs> Continue. Um, sorry. Um, and then the actual, like, filtered coffee didn't even come around until, like, the late 1800s. I would say maybe even early 19th century. I could be wrong on that. I, I, I remember the research is a little rusty in my head from what we did from the episode. But there you have it. Just want to give you a brief interlude into where it came from in case someone got Well, speaking curious. of tea and coffee, we have another piece of listener feedback that literally just came in two hours ago. I'm, this is, I'm just seeing it now. Uh, it's from an unknown listener. Uh, it says, Hello. I was just listening to the podcast about tea and coffee. While the British are known for their love of tea, per capita, they are not the largest consumers. Paraguay actually leads in consumption, followed by 10 or 11 other countries before the UK, including Uruguay, Argentina, Ireland, Kuwait, and Syria. I did know about Ireland. The Irish inherited the tea fad from the British occupation, unfortunately, uh, but definitely a cultural practice that yeah. stuck. Uh, it says even more surprising is the fact that uh, China is nowhere near the top, being around number forty. Love hmm. listening to the show. Interesting. <clears throat> and this is uh, this is contributed by some guy. Well, some guy, which is a unique name, is that Dutch? Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, one of our regulars, because hey, that's our one year anniversary. Why not have some uh, a shout out from one of our regulars, Stephen? Steven says, get Dave to do more promos. Seriously, he should do political ads. Vote for this. He's better than the other. And kudos on the commercial for Eversleep Tea. Uh, my wife snores, uh, so maybe you know we'll get her some soothing tea. Uh, oh, and the screaming caffeine-addicted goats were a nice touch. Uh, so two things, Stephen. First of all, <laughs> please do not ever tell us that you want to kill your wife. <laughs> because we might take it seriously. <laughs> And played in a call to the Australian police. Um, <laughs> second of all, the goats, as much as it sounded interesting, those were actually were not goats. Those were just us screaming <laughs> as uh, harshly as we could. And it ended up sounding like the, the famous Taylor Swift screaming goat. But it was not. It was humans. It was humans. Absolutely. We have one last piece of listener feedback. Uh, we have one that we've actually been sitting on, and it's hilarious. Jeff sent us a donation <clears throat> about uh, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. It was like, we think it was something like $20 or so, and he said that we could only use it on Hot Pockets, which, mm, well, we were we were kind of in debate about, but we're like, no, we'll honor it, we'll honor it. Here's what he said in response to that. Hey, nerds, I won the Hump Day Stump Day on Facebook. First, I will note that you haven't spent my last donation on Hot Pockets yet. <laughs> you could always name your computer or the ceiling Hot Pockets. <laughs> I like the idea of naming the ceiling Hot Pockets. It'd be funny because it is kind of, right? <laughs> they are like little Hot Pockets of yeah. air. I like it. Uh, and use the money for that. If you already spent it on the food, he says food in quotes, 
the food Hot Pockets, well then, I'm sorry for your digestive tracts. <laughs> <laughs> and tracks. so were we. I see the remainder of my time to the chairperson. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, that's probably one of the... Fu- that, that made me chuckle out loud. That was a very funny and very concise email, so thank you very much. And uh, I agree. I think we will, uh, we will dub the ceiling good old Hot Pockets, huh? Here, here. Or Hot Pocket. Hot Pocket. Hot Pocket. Hot Pocket, yeah. Because yeah. it's a singular <clears throat> ceiling. We don't no, more mm-hmm. than one. Just Hot Pocket. Sure. So we need to know we need to get some insulation for the ceiling and then pepperoni. Yeah. And tomato sauce. <laughs> and tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. We'll just go with it. It'll work. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fine. And then it smells rancid. And, <laughs> and we have to evacuate. Um, so <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Uh, we also had a couple of things we want to mention from Twitter. One is kind of epic show. We, we thank you very much for listening to our show and giving us like a bazillion tweets from when you guys were at Gen Con a couple weeks ago. Those were awesome. Um, they posted pictures and related moments that from our show's content, and they did it throughout the week and gave us mentions all the, all the time. It was it was really really cool. Yeah, so awesome. And you mentioned just very briefly earlier, but I am a big game board uh, geek, and in fact, I've even developed and, and are currently in development for some board games that uh, I hope to one day bring to the world. Indeed, yeah, and uh, one of our uh, our pal Jeremy actually was mm-hmm. uh, was at was there uh, demoing his product to publishers at Gen Con. So there you go. It was kind of cool that we saw that parallel. Uh, finally, is um, in the room with us at in the room with us. They have also been retweeting some of our tweets just to spread the word of nerd, and we we are so appreciative of that. So thank you. We have a you have a genuine thank you from us from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. Well, we have one last piece of listener feedback, which will lead us into our episode today. And this one comes from Sharon. Hi, guys. I found your podcast a few weeks ago, and I've been listening through from episode one. Within three episodes, you became my favorite podcast. Oh, thank you. Very nice. Today, there were a few comments about me in the cube here at work, just having too much fun with my earbuds in. I just listened to the Caesarean Conception and loved it and laughed out loud, apparently. Awesome show along with the rest of them. Thanks so much for the quality work. I really enjoy the episode about the Catholic Church popes as well. I'm not a religious person, or practicing is maybe a better description, but I love learning about what makes up the levels of authority in the Catholic community. I am intrigued, and thank you for all the cool things I am learning. Too many shows to mention. I don't think I've listened to one that I did not like. I am a genealogist. You should do a show on your family histories. We don't have to have famous families in our trees to have cool people in our trees. History on Sharon. Sharon, thank you so much. What a great piece of listener feedback to lead us into this episode. And how, how appropriate for our one-year anniversary, we decided not to do so much a history that you could find anywhere else out there, you know, whether it be in a book or another podcast or the internet. We decided we do a history you can only find here, and that is the history of the Moriarty's and the Brickmonts. There you go. Well, I'd be lying to you if I could say that you could only get the information on the Moriarty's here, because part of it I got from somewhere else. Um, well, fair enough. I have a much more select breed. But it's also because the Moriarty's, is a, to be honest, is a much wider la- surname. Uh, it's spread out quite a bit now. Um, but the Brickmont name is pretty unusual, pretty unique. In fact, I'll share a little factoid with you guys. The man uh, sitting across from me is the only person on the planet Earth whose name is Eric Brickmont. That is correct. I have done a lot of research into this. My cousin has done far more, and I will share with you what I've learned from her and my father when we talk more about my my family's history. 
but uh, the the last name of Brickmont is extremely rare. Uh, it originates most likely somewhere from within France uh, quite many years ago. I'll go into more detail in a little bit, but there are a few alterations and variations in the spelling. I have Google searched all of those with my first name in front, and as far as I can tell, I'm the only Eric Brickmont in the world. Now, that may not be 100% accurate. If you are another Eric Brickmont, uh, the chances of you actually listening to this podcast and hearing it are, are astronomical. Please do give me listener feedback, uh, and I will I will share the title with you. But as far as I know, I'm it. Well, I'm not the only Brian Moriarty, but I am the first one that comes up on Google. Yes, you, that... are, you are the Brian Moriarty. Which is a crazy feeling. Now, they do say that Google searches are very specialized to the person who is who is initiating them. So I don't know if that's Google just trying to, like, stroke my ego a little bit. But if so, <laughs> good job, Google. Um, but if it's not, hey, you know what? Do, do yourself a favor, guys. Um, <laughs> stroke my ego a little bit. Uh, Google Brian Moriarty, B-R-Y-A-N and M-O-R-I-A-R-T-Y, and see what comes up. If I'm the first name on there in relation to Deuteronomy, hey! freaking sweet uh otherwise let me know because there's also a lot of brian's with ians out there uh the b-r-y-a-n your name and moriarty done a search on my ipad comes up with you at the very top result in fact you are the top picture that comes up as well wow yeah that is crazy that's pretty cool and creepy at the same time but okay well it's 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 cool just um, go with it yeah yeah I'm going to have a breakdown in a moment now. <laughs> I don't think I can handle this. Breathe. Breathe. <clears throat> well done. So, uh, indeed. So, where should we begin? Who's You have quite a bit of research. I've got on... a ton. I, in fact, I would rather you started, to be totally okay. honest. Because I, I have so much. You can just give me the cue and we need to shut up and end this podcast. Because I, I can go on for ages. Well, if that's the case, we should have ended this five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Funny guy. Yeah. Well, let's start with, with just the name Moriarty, right? When you hear the term Moriarty, what's the first thing you think, Eric? I think of Sherlock Holmes. And you and about millions of other people have said that. And I've gotten that every single time. It's two questions I get over and over again. Is that like Sherlock Holmes? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Is that Italian? No. No, it's not. It's... Irish. Thank you. <laughs> and then I begrudgingly take my money and leave. <laughs> I will never go to that Starbucks again. <laughs> it's not that bad, but it does happen quite a bit. So, uh, yes, Moriarty is Irish. And in fact, the the evolution of the name Moriarty uh, is kind of interesting because it, in Gaelic Irish, is a very different name. Uh, it derives from the the Irish Gaelic Omirchete. Hmm. And if you were to look at the spelling of Omirchete, you'd be like, what is going on there? Much like most Gaelic, um, there are a lot of consonants and lots of extra vowels for diphthongs. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It, it looks like the sound that you make when you get impaled in the stomach. Literally, it's Muir, like the ghost of Mrs. Muir, if you are familiar with that old TV show. Heart with it with a C, like the actual word heart, mm -hmm. and teh, which is T A I G H. So O Muir Te. And yeah, again, like I said, the sound that you make when you get impaled in the stomach. <laughs> exactly. And Gaelic has a very almost Germanic sound to it when you say it. There are some very phlegmy 
consonants that happen there. Mm-hmm. There are certain uh, characters, but it's also kind of French. I mean, it does make sense because the Gales were from the Gaul at one right. point. So um, there are certain sounds that are also very rolled, like mur, murte. And if uh, anyone, and those are, are Irish listeners, if I'm mispronouncing it, please tell me. And I, you have my profound apologies if I'm butchering <laughs> the Irish language. But that's, from my understanding, that's how it's pronounced. And it means navigator, of all things, which is why the family crest is a um, black eagle or black Hmm. falcon who seems to be fighting a snake, which is kind of badass, I think. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Uh, basically, to, to make a long story short, I mean, Ireland has a fascinating ancient history to it. Uh, for those, I'll give you a quick little crash course to it. Um, Ireland, until the English occupation in the, uh, gosh, I want to say the first time was with Edward II, I believe. And it was basically a monarchy that was based out of chieftains from um, regions. Every county in Ireland had their own king. And then by a process of ro- rotation, um one chieftain was nominated, was in a way, I guess, elected to be the high king of all of Ireland. And that's what they referred to it as. They were just the high king. They weren't like an emperor of any kind. It was, that was just what they what they called it, um, which is very unique. There's really been no systems of government that I can say that had kings and high kings that was other than empires, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the Moriarty family way, 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 way back was royalty. Uh, of one of these uh, counties. And originally it was Munster. and But the county of Munster does not have many Moriarty's in it now. Most Moriarty's now came from uh, the county of Kerry. And that's where my great-grandfather came from. Or rather, my great-great-grandfather uh, came from. <clears throat> Let me give you a couple of little quick... An interesting fact, it's yeah. also where the Munsters themselves were from. Really? Uh, before they immigrated into America. Really? Yes. <laughs> really? All right, Sorry. I told yes, you. Yes, my grandfather is a vampire, <laughs> and my father is Frankenstein's monster, and I'm a werewolf. I, I, I'm coming out right now and saying I'm secretly, I, I am Eddie Munster. You can look at my arm hair, and you will see that as proof. Uh, yes. <laughs> we keep coming back to werewolf, werewolves. It's fascinating. I don't know why. Yeah. We, I think we are destined to battle them. Yeah. yeah. In World War Four. Or I'm destined to become one of them. Please don't kill me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a good one, I promise. I'll be the one, I'll be the one who defects gotcha. to the other side. Getting back on topic, sorry. Uh, what I found when I was looking at my family name is uh, a distant relative of mine. I don't know quite how we're connected just yet. But a guy by the name of Kevin C. Moriarty, who, uh, interestingly enough, has the same name as my uncle. But he's not my uncle. I know that. Hmm. He's, he's a photographer. But he has done a considerable amount of gene- genealogical research on our family's surname. So I have to thank him for the, the as the primary source of my research for tonight. And you can find this all at Moriarty. USA.com, by the way, M-O-R-I-A-R-T-Y-U-S-A.com. So the first thing is he looked up a lot of historical data from the, by genealogical books by O'Hart, McLeisett, and O'Brien, um, who were considered, and they, uh, he also found baptismal records, which in many cases were better than birth certificates at oh, some points. way better. Um, parish records. We'll say one thing about the Catholic Church. They were very good at documentation when it came to deaths and, and baptisms. That, and interesting enough, interestingly enough, the Mormons have preserved a lot of that, too. Well, that's for a whole other reason. We won't get into that. Yes, but if it wasn't for that, a lot of the information that my family history is built off of would not exist. Oh, very good. 
And there was also some records that were lost in, uh, apparently there was a fire in the Dublin Hall records in 1922, and it was irreparable. Um, but uh, thankfully... Seriously, to quote your father, fire bad. Yeah. Fire bad. In- yeah, indeed. <laughs> this is your Munster father, of course, but fire bad. <laughs> Um, basically, thankfully, there was some evidence that was able to be pieced together from that unfortunate occurrence that destroyed lots and lots of evidence going on. So, like we said, the, um, the family name is first found in Kerry, and it goes back to Kerry. Like I said, there was a little bit of talking about Munster. But the name Moriarty came into the way it currently is spelled because of many different Anglicizations of it. When the English took over... Um, the most common one it turned into was O Moriarty, since mm. O Muerte was not too far away. And O is always meant like of, right? You are derived from so-and-so. But then again, so does the prefix Mick. Mick also means you're the son of someone. So uh, here are the following variations of O Muerte as it has evolved. Obviously Moriarty and O Moriarty. Murtaugh. 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 As in like, I'm too old for this... Stuff. Murtaugh. <laughs> uh, the M-U-R-T-A-G-H. Murtaugh is actually a closer, just more of abbreviated version of, hmm. of the original name. Murtag, M-U-R-T-A-G. Mick Moriarty, which I have not found anybody named Mick Moriarty, but that seems kind of interesting. And Omurtaugh. And to make a long story short, when people were migrating or people were trying to get the names down, they were trying to spell it as best they could. And the name slowly evolved. I was fascinated to find out that I'm not even sure if my last name is spelled correctly. Uh, if I'm correct, because my my grand my great grandfather's birth certificate is spelled Moriarty. There's an extra I in there. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm very very convinced at this point that there was a, it was just a typo that was done sure, by the clerical error uh, by the nurse or whoever was at the hospital. But that's kind of how names change, though, uh, and that's how the Moriarty name kind of got to where it is now yeah the same thing with my name uh the brickmont spelling b-r-i-c-m-o-n-t also has variations which were probably just you know when they were being recorded during baptisms being written down incorrectly by the priest uh and because most people back you know during the 17th century were illiterate you didn't have people writing their own names in and therefore it was just whatever the priest was hearing so brickmont also has variations of brackman and spelled with the traditional kind of q u that you find in french uh, rather than the C, the first C in Brickmont, um, or only C in Brickmont, but it, it's there's all sorts of different reasons why names can change. And you saw this with people who were coming over and immigrating into the United States. Yeah. They were coming through Ellis Island, and again, a lot of situations where either they were illiterate or, you know, because the lines were so long, they were just trying to get people to go. What's your name? All right. Was this it? No? Well, it's close enough. Enjoy your new life in America. Shall I, shall I continue? Please. Cool. Uh, going back to how do we connect from Kerry to Munster at this point? Um, the family... So first of all, there basically was one person at one point whose name was Omir Herte. Like, that was their name. We all drive back to that one individual. And uh, his clan was descended from a guy named Dumnall, who was the king of Munster, as I was referring to before, uh, and possessed a flock abounding plain uh, of iced in the territories of the Anglo-Norman invasion of Strongbow in the year 1172, they were ousted by the Fitzgeralds. So apparently our family's got some bad blood way, way back with the Fitzgeralds. Mm. No idea. If I were me a Fitzgerald today, wouldn't have any problem with them. But it's interesting to see how these family clans uh, were, you know, 
sometimes warring, warring with one another. Um, they also branched the Kells to the county of Meath, uh, and this was confiscated. So the, uh, the Moriarty's also are a strong ecclesiastical family. That's not, that's not shocking, considering how <laughs> much Catholic I've spread all over this whole podcast. A couple Moriarty's in Ireland who are of note are um, the Reverend David Moriarty. Reverend is just their name for priest, right? Just the, the prefix for priest. But also, he apparently was uh, the Bishop of Kerry at some point. Hmm. Wow, really? Is, yeah. So um, it's in and, your blood. It's your calling. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, many of them uh, lost their right to preach under the Penal Code of 1714, which is more than likely when the Church of England was trying to impose Anglicanism in the territories. Notable amongst the family at the time was Father Taddy McMoriarty. Taddy is that uh, short for Thaddeus? Or yeah, it would be Thaddeus because it's T H A D Y, and then McMoriarty. Taddy McMoriarty. Wow, that's like the most Irish name I've ever heard in my life. I, I would agree with that statement completely. During the 12th century, they called High King Ardrich. Ardrich was what the Gaelic word for High King was. So uh, there were people who were um, to, uh, basically kind of getting a fast forward to what I was talking about. It was King Henry II, not Edward II. One of the Irish clansmen's who were, uh, you know, a county king, um, was trying to seize the high crown of Ireland, asked for King... Henry II's help uh, help from England, and in return got invaded. So, huh. all 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 good deeds uh, come, get paid back in kind. Do they indeed? Not? And then, of course, no, we won't. This isn't an episode about Irish history, but Moriarty's family is name is heavily woven into that, and so we should definitely spend an episode about Irish history. That'd be a really great episode. I think we we can do. Let's move to 1845, because 1845 was a big year. And why is that, Eric? Do you know why? It's the year the Suez Canal was opened. What? Pretty sure. 1845? Yep. year the Suez Canal was opened. Okay, but how does that relate to the Irish? It doesn't. I'm just saying. Okay. Cool. So going back to the Irish for a second, <laughs> um, 1845 was the Great Potato Famine. Ah, yes. There yeah. was also that. So for those who don't know what the Great Potato Famine was, uh, it literally wiped out half the population of Ireland. Killed three million people. It was, um, it was horrific. So thanks to our uh, exploration into the New World, the explorers came, brought back potatoes to Ireland, and they grew really, really well, as it turns out. And the Irish loved them, which is why we have that terrible stereotype associated with us, because it was a sizable portion of uh, the Irish diet. And rightfully so, because potatoes, when they're in their pure form, are very high in nutrients, uh, they can sustain you. They've got they're you no know, good. They're a good carbohydrate. Excellent starch. Uh, excellent starch. Lots of electrolytes in them. There's more potassium in, in a potato than there is in a banana. Huh. So like it's got some good things going on with it. So that's why you no know, people were eating them. And then a rare fungus developed that pretty much wiped out all those crops, and instant starvation. There are stories where people's bodies were found on the side of the road and their lips were green. Lips weren't green from rotting. The lips were so green is because they were starving to death so much they were trying to eat grass. Wow. And the grass, it's just grass is not a food that humans are meant to digest. No. At all. So pretty horrendous. So those who could, and by could I mean loosely, probably scrounging together what resources they had, uh, fled to parts of the world where the famine was not affecting them. You know, England, of course, because they were the closest nearby through the upper part of Scotland and the United States. Of and Canada as well. And Canada, indeed. There was plenty of Irish who uh, actually sided with the crown, of all things, in the American Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a, which I thought was fascinating. 
and angering. And so, ironic, really. <laughs> yeah. But that's where my story actually that's where it becomes a like where it becomes personal. Because Mr. Moriarty here, Kevin, um, actually pinned down my relatives. I know when my great grandfather my great great grandfather came to America now. And with the moment when I saw these names and the connection, I got goosebumps. I it, it was a holy I'm just gonna say it and sorry for the profanity, it was a holy shit moment. So let me just say it. There were pretty much three migrations from Ireland to the United States, three, three major ones. One was in 1849, which were uh, to Boston. And those Moriarty's were Ellen, Daniel, Eugene, Margaret, Michael, <laughs> my dad's name, and Thomas Moriarty. And I'm not related to those. I mean, I, I am, but I'm not. My lineage doesn't come from that sprout. Mine comes from a later one, which is um, James John Martin, Maurice, and Michael Moriarty, who landed in Philadelphia. And I'll be honest with you, I've got some new information that I need to give to Mr. Mr. Moriarty here, because he says in his research that uh, it was between 1840 and 1860. I actually have the exact year. When was it? 1858. Damn, you beat me by two years. Yeah. And it's crazy that I can say that I know that, but here's how I know that. John Moriarty. John's my great-great-grandfather. Awesome. That's amazing, right? John, uh, well, we'll just call him John Sr. for a moment, if we can. One of his kids was John Moriarty Jr. And we know because I have his birth certificate right here. And John Moriarty Sr. was 32 years old when his wife gave birth to my, my uh, great-grandfather. And my great-grandfather was born in 1890. So if you just do the math, 32 years is 1858 at that point. Now... That pretty much means that John was an infant when he came to the United States. Um, so he really isn't culturally all that Irish. I mean, his family was, of course. And he was born in Kerry. <laughs> so there's there's your historical connection there. He was born in Kerry of Ireland, but he he had to be no more than one years old when he, uh, when he came to the United States. Um, what I find really, really fascinating is, do you know who my great-great-grandmother's name was? Take a guess. Think of, think of another big Irish name. Kate. Catherine Kennedy. Close. Catherine Kennedy? Kennedy, yeah. I, I like how it actually took him to sink in for a second. It's like, oh, shit, a Kennedy. <laughs> Somewhere down the lines, I'm connected to the Kennedys. Uh, our family is connected to the Kennedys, which is kind of awesome. Uh, it's interesting how you see that we're really not all that different when you tr- trace your steps back as far as, as we have. And I just find it's interesting how all these names are common. There's lots of Michaels, lots of Kevins. Um, the Johns kind of stopped with us because we didn't, for some reason, it kind of stopped with my grandfather. My grandfather is Robert Francis Moriarty Sr., and he was born in 1930, too. His father was John. My dad, unfortunately, didn't know his grandfather very well because he passed away when he was, uh, I think, before he was even born. So he never knew him at all. So I know very little about my great-grandfather at this point. But my dad was very close to his grandfather on my grandmother's side. My grandmother was Anita Campbell. Uh, Pepe is they were from uh, French. They were French Canadian. Um, he actually was from the Scottish lineage, but he lived in Canada when he met my great grandmother, who lived to be a hundred years old before she passed away. She was born in 1909, which is kind of crazy. Hmm. Like 1909 seems like well, the, yeah, that's 103 years ago, 104 years ago at this point. But 1909 was. I mean, there were still horse-drawn carriages in, in North America at that point. We hadn't really adopted the automobile or electricity 
for that much. You know, 1909 was a very different America than it was by 1929, for example. Sure. You know, so it, it really does come alive. History does really come alive when you when you can trace trace by two or three generations all the way back to an early, a totally different lifestyle, totally different culture, almost. Let me think about where I want to go with this. Do you want to talk about your mom? Well, my mom's family, I've already talked a little bit about. My mom, um, I don't know much about because my paternal grandfather was adopted. So, um, kind of puts a stop to it there. Yeah, yeah. So, Mortensen, which is my mom's maiden name, I mean, is Danish, but it's not our, our lineage. You know, Meaning my son of Mort. <laughs> um, my grandfather has paid to get some research into understanding where his father, his real father, came from. And he knows a little bit. There's a little bit of Irish on uh, in his lineage, but there's just a lot we don't know. So, um, unfortunately, that's kind of a dead end. My grandmother, the one who recently passed, uh, is a Coronado. And she was pretty much half Spanish. Like, she, her Coronado descendants is pretty straight back to, as I mentioned in the Mexico episode, Francisco de Coronado. Um, one thing of note, though, my, my great-grandfather passed, Tony Coronado. Uh, was a professional boxer, and you can look him up. Tony Coronado. I think he was called. His nickname was he was called Concrete Coronado. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think he had to stop quitting boxing because he got hit in the head too much, or some or something like that. I, I don't know uh, for sure. He died having sex, or died just after having sex. Good times. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't his wife. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The things we learn on Nerds on History. Skeletons coming out of the family's closet. <laughs> my apologies, my family. <laughs> you probably didn't want me to say that. <laughs> well, it happened. So that's kind of with my mom's side. My grandfather, uh, Robert, uh, well, first off, he was went by Bob. Actually, most of the time he went by Mo. <laughs> uh, so uh, around the office, my nickname's become BMO, which I hate. Um, <laughs> I, but know. It, I know. I know you hate it. But it's... Um, <laughs> I, it does at least remind me of my grandfather because he was always called Mo. Yeah, you know, and he is a was an interesting guy, very traditional Irish American, Irish Catholic. Uh, I find interesting he, politically he had, took a complete one eighty. He was a Democrat for many years. He helped campaign for John F. Kennedy. Oh wow! I mean, he was invited to to the White House. I actually had the we actually had the invitation, and then circa nineteen eighty, he became staunch Republican. Hmm. Yeah, really, really weird how that kind of shifted he served in korea in the marine corps said it was the best time of his life and then he would never speak about it other than that yeah because he was in the front lines and he probably saw some stuff that oh sure i'm sure he did no one ever wants to talk about uh met my grandma after he got out uh they fell instantly in love fell deeply in love and uh my grandfather was pretty good looking i gotta say and so is my grandmother like they were like that guy a handsome nice. couple yeah they were very very handsome couple uh, and like any Irish Catholic family, they had six kids. <laughs> that That's on the low side. Yeah. Well, there was actually a seventh. The seventh ah. one actually didn't go to term, unfortunately. And that's actually something I do want to share, because an unfortunate turn of events, when my grandmother unfor- miscarried one of my, what would have been uh, uncles, my grandfather's brother's wife had passed away at, at mm. the same time. And um, I think he was also a John. He might have been John III, actually, now that I think about it. Um, my grandfather couldn't go to the funeral because he, he had to take care of us because my grandmother was in the hospital. Sure. And uh, my great uncle never forgave him for it. And they never spoke again. Wow. And my my grandfather tried several times to to remend and 
never happened, unfortunately. Which is really, really unfortunate because now there's a whole part of my family I never get to know. I'll never get to know because of that. And a large part that my family lost touch with now because of what happened. Yeah. So it is really kind of sad. And then, you know, we've prospered. I mean, I'm one of 15 grandchildren of the Moriarty's, which is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Um, And the Moriarty families evolved even further. You know, my first cousins are half Japanese and their last name is Moriarty. That's cool. Like, that's just my cousin, Patrick. You would not think he is Irish at all when you first hear him. He's just like it's it's really kind of a testament to living in uh, the Bay Area because <laughs> we are so ethnically diverse now. It's just really interesting to see how the family has evolved. Yeah, yeah. well done, sir. Thank you. Well done. Well, is it my turn? Uh, better be for fifty minutes in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, this is gonna be a long episode, ladies and gentlemen. Where do I start? Okay, well, let me put it this way. First off, uh, I have to thank my cousin. We don't have that much time, so let's, <laughs> so let's let, yeah, so let's not, let's start maybe late 19th century, is that possible? No, but that's okay. Don't worry. I'll make it work. <laughs> Just with haste. <laughs> okay, okay. Don't, don't rush me, Brian. Don't rush me. Uh, I will say thank you to my cousin. My father's cousin, Odette, has spent years compiling our family history, and it's far more complete and detailed than the vast majority of people uh, have available to them. And it, it comes from just dedication and love of the family and, and who we are and, and what we represent as a family. And my, my father has supported her with this. Uh, my cousin Richard has supported her with this. All of my family really have provided her with so much information. And she was out here last year doing interviews with the family to compile all the stories and all the information that's been passed down. In addition to the extensive interviews that my father conducted with my grandfather back in 1968, uh, all of them were audio recorded and went on for, I mean, hours upon hours upon hours. So she's gone through all of this and she's compiled a document that, uh, two documents that are total about 120 pages. Uh, and it's not just graphs and diagrams and, you know, family trees and ge- ge- geographical information. It's actual stories, our history, as told out and written out by her. And it's phenomenal. It's absolutely amazing. It's so fortuitous that she sent this completed form that she's been working on for a year, just a few days before we started doing this episode. Yeah. And it's given me a chance to learn more about my family history than I even I, that I didn't even know about. And I've told you and the other nerds at length about my family and where they've come from. And this has just shed it a whole new Well, So out. let me ask you a, a, a leading question. So first of all, where has most of your family been born? Most of the information that I have is for my father's side of the family. My mother's side of the family, not unlike yours, were Irish immigrants. Uh, they actually came to Canada sometime probably in the 1850s or so. Again, directly connected with the, the Great Famine. And then they made their way into the heartland of America, where they set up in uh, in Ohio and Indiana and uh, Iowa, primarily. And my my mother's family, they made their way out to the West Coast via my grandfather, who, after leaving the army in 1947, I believe it was, went to work for several companies because he was a, a computer genius. This man started his career with computers in the Army. He was working for the Army uh, Air Corps before the Air Force even existed, uh, doing surveillance missions out of India. And he would bring this, all these you know, photos and all the data back, and they would actually use com- computers, very early IBM computers, to, to crunch the data. Hmm. And he was responsible for that. So he was born in Canada? I'm sorry? No, he was born in Ohio. In Ohio, okay. Yeah, he was born in Ohio, and his family, though, his, his parents... Uh, were also born in Ohio, but his grandparents were born in Canada. 
that is really interesting. We're not born in Canada, excuse me. We're lived in Canada by way of most likely Ireland. That is an odd similarity because while my great 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 grandfather was born in Ireland, but two or three generations were all born in Hartford, Connecticut. Really? Yeah. So that's why most of my family still lives in Connecticut. But mm. um, I just find it interesting how there's that there there wasn't that quite that that spread. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's we're all over the place. We're in, yeah. we're all across the country. So, but you guys are pretty much though only in California, right? Uh, as far as the United States is concerned, or are you guys? And uh, is there any people left in in Ohio? Yeah, my my mother still has family uh, out those parts. My uh, my cousin Kathy. I'm not exactly sure where she falls into the cousins line. I'm I'm pretty sure she's my grandmother's brother's daughter's daughter. If I, I remember see. correctly, something like that. Uh, she still lives out in the Midwest, as do a few of the other uh, Kerwins, which is from my mom's side of the family. Gotcha. And uh, totally Irish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Originally O. Kerwin. Many, many years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. Of course. Um, but now it's now it's just Kerwin. But my, my grandfather, just an amazing person. I have very few memories of him. He passed away when I was very young. Um, sadly, I have, I have two distinct memories. I have one where he was sitting in the back watching a football game, and he gave me a penny. He used to always give me pennies, apparently, and I, I remember one of those instances. And the other was the morning after he had passed away. Mm. And I remember waking up and walking into the kitchen, and my mother was sitting in the kitchen just crying. And I was the only person up with her. It was like 6 in the morning. And she had just gotten the phone call that he had passed away the night before in the hospital. So those those are, the, unfortunately, the only two memories I have connected with my grandfather. But my mother speaks you know, very highly of his intelligence. I mean, he was just an absolute computer whiz in a time when computers were the size of an entire building. You know, it was all done on punch right, cards. Right, right. ENIAC. And he took yeah. that out, and he had a long career across many different companies, including Kaiser and Lockheed Martin, uh, where he worked as a computer programmer for, mm. you know, pretty much his entire working life. Wow. So what an amazing guy. And that that's, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of information about my mother's side of the family. Other than that, the most comprehensive information I have is about my father's side of the family, which are broken up into two groups. You have the French and Belgian side, uh, which are via my... A paternal grandfather, and then you have the Portuguese side, which are via my paternal grandmother. I see. So there are still Brickmonts in Belgium, I take it. There are. There's probably about 200 of our known Brickmont descendants that are in the world today. We're a very small family. If you ever meet another person named Brickmont or Brickma or Brackman, uh, they are all variations based off of the Brickmont surname, and they are direct rel- relatives of mine. Wow. In some way or another, we are connected, probably going back four or five generations, but we are we are connected. Wow. Interestingly enough, though, it's the, the first members of my family to come to America, however, were on the Portuguese side. And I have two really incredible coming to America stories that kind of tell how they got here. Uh, one of them was my great-great-grandfather, Joe Silva. Uh, Joe was born on the small island of Pico in the, in the Azores, just off of uh, the coast of Portugal. And uh, as is a common tradition in that area, he was a whaler. And in or around 18, late 1850s, early 1860s, uh, it was not uncommon for ships coming from, you know, out of, you know, like New England, for example, who were going to go on whaling expeditions to come over into the Azores and pick up an experienced crew of whalers. What their hope was is that these guys would jump ship when they got to their halfway point through their journey. Uh, and as they made their return journey with all the wealth that they had accumulated, they would be able to keep the, the majority of it and they would just get their crew, you know, bye guys, you want a new life? Hey, here's a new world. Go and enjoy it. And that's exactly what my great, great grandfather, Joe Silva did. He left the island, some dispute in the family, whether or not he left behind a wife. We don't really know. Uh, hmm. he may have left behind a wife who had died. 
so we're not exactly sure what his life was like before that. We have very little information. But it took him probably about two years to get to America. We don't know the exact date that he arrived, but these, these voyages generally lasted between two and three years. And they would go up, you know, along the coast of the Americas, all the way down around Cape Horn, down in South America, and then dock up in San Francisco right. at a halfway point. Giant making a giant U, essentially. Exactly. And then they would make the return voyage. Well, he never made that return voyage. He jumped ship. And he stayed here uh, in America in or around 1860. Yeah. So we don't know, the, again, the exact date. Folks, keep in mind this is before the Panama Canal was built, which made transferring from uh, Pacific to Atlantic far easier. Yes, it did, as uh, one of my other ancestors can attest to. Oh, interesting. That's coming soon. So he, he stayed behind. His daughter, with his second wife, uh, second of four wives, interesting enough, they were all named Mary. Okay, so he had some problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two or three of them may have died. We're not exactly sure. One of them, uh, he divorced. But uh, they were all named Mary, interestingly enough. And his uh, his daughter, who was also named Mary, ended up meeting up with the other aspect of my grandmother's family, and that are the Frieras. And they were also Portuguese. Uh, they came on over. My, my great-grandfather, Frank Freira, married Joe Silva's daughter, Mary. Uh, and they were the the parents of my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was born in Sunnyvale. Uh, she was born in 1909, if I remember correctly. Uh, and she was actually born on Matilda Avenue, which is where my sister lived for a short time uh, with her then fiance, now husband, uh, which is kind of interesting. They lived right nearby where she was born. Uh, shortly after that, they bought a cattle ranch down near Hollister. And that's where she spent most of her youth uh, and into her adulthood. So she she ended up growing up, you know, around a lot of cows. She was definitely kind of a cowgirl. You know, she was my grandmother. I've told stories about her before. She was kind of a kind of a gung ho, rough and tumble, not the kind of person you want to screw with. Uh, she oftentimes would get in fights with people, and you know, she'd let them hear it. Some of my earliest memories of my childhood are my grandmother swearing in Portuguese at the top of her lungs at the neighbors. Oh, this is that grandmother. Yeah, this oh, is that okay. grandmother. The fiery Portuguese blood all makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because her father, Frank, when he came to America, he came actually by way of train over to the West Coast. He came to the East Coast first. And there's a, a very interesting story about his first night in America. Because he got off the ship and he decided to uh, spend his first night in a nice, uh, you know, boarding house, essentially. You know, he wanted a private room, so he paid a little extra for it. Got all set up, prepared for bed, started to lay down. And he heard this really strange sound. It sounded like the claws of an animal, like a dog or a cat or something on the on the ground, but something heavy. And he thought, oh, maybe the, the you know the boarding house's dog had got in his room. So uh, he lit a match, and he lit the candle next to his bed, and he looked under the bed and looked around. There was nothing in there, and that was kind of weird. So he got up and made sure the doors were locked and the window was locked, and he put a chair in front of the door so that he'd be even more alerted if somebody was coming in or some animal was coming in. And he didn't think much of it, of it after that, and he just blew out the candle and tried to go back to sleep. And sure enough, he started hearing the sound again. And this time it was louder, and he thought he would wait a little longer and see if it kind of, you know, what would happen to it, and it started to get closer to the bed. And so he lit another match, lit the candle, got up, looked around the room, nothing there. He said, all right, this is a little odd. So he blows out the candle, lays down, and this time the sound comes back even faster than before and very, very loud and very near him. And then he feels a depression on the bottom of the bed, right near his feet. And this, this awful smell 
kind of overpowers him. And he's just almost paralyzed with fear. And he hears the sound of what sounds like a dog, like this snarling kind of growling sound and this heaviness come over him. And as quickly as he can, he lights the match again and nothing is there. And that was it. He was done. He was not sleeping that night. And he got up and he went down and just sat down in the bottom uh, room, the, the you know, like the, the dining room of the boarding house. And that was his first night in America. So he had some sort of like ghost story, essentially. Essentially, some, that's like, exactly like, some it. sort of ghost dog. Yeah, in his room on his first night in America. My grandmother used to tell this story at length, and she heard it so many times as she was growing up. She would tell it with the most intricate details, you know, describing just every little aspect of it. Uh, and again, as you can imagine, she was she was kind of the quite a storyteller, you know. But hey, I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying. That that's the story that she would tell. Well, it's the details that make the story real, that make the story believable, yeah. right? And that's very much what my grandmother's side of that family was kind of like. They were very larger-than-life kind of personalities, very big personalities. My grandfather's side also has a really interesting history. And this is the one that goes back a very, very long way. And this is where the surname Brickmont originates from. And it's so difficult to really piece all of it together because we know that the first examples of... A type of Brickmont, if you will, a version of the name, come from a Danish prince by the name of Breker. And as was very common, uh, you know, in around 900 AD, you had Viking raids all up and down uh, the coast of, of Western Europe. And you had Breker coming down into Normandy, essentially setting up shop and opening a small chieftain, if you will. So he started a little, a little kingdom. And the area there became associated with him. Uh, and Breaker's Mound, which is the area where his his old keep used to be, uh, is still known of and is associated with a river nearby, Breaker's Beck, which is where Breckebeck, the town in France uh, today, gets its name from. It's possible our family name has some sort of connection with that, although we're not exactly sure how or where it makes itself a little further uh, east into Europe, into Belgium. And that's where we find the first real example of the name Brickmont being written, B-R-I-C-M-O-N-T, pronounced Brickmont in the French. Uh, and this is from a small village in southern Belgium, which is uh, called Wallonia. Okay, so the Wallones are the French-speaking people of, of Belgium. And in around the 14th and 15th century, you find some of the first examples of people using uh, Brickmont as a, as a surname, at least as far as we can tell. Surnames are funny things, though, because people didn't really start commonly using them until around the 19th century. It was very common in Europe to, before that to not have a surname connected with you at all. You were usually known kind of by the area that you were from. Right. And that's where a lot of surnames probably have their origin is from the town or city that you were born in. Uh, and the town of Brickmont very likely gave its its origin or its its surname to my descendants, my direct descendants. So it's unlikely that we're probably connected to the Viking aspect beyond that. Although genetic testing that's been done by myself and my father using a service called 23andMe, you pay $100, they do a mapping of your genome and tell you, you know, what you're probably going to die of. Uh, and that resulted in us being part of the uh, L1 helio group or I1 helio group, which is extremely common. About 40% of European and male descendants have that associated with them. 
But we also had some other more specific genetic markers that did pinpoint our DNA going back 5,000 years into around Denmark. So could there be a connection from that? Maybe, but it's probably from and around that time when these Viking raids were penetrating far, far into France and Belgium, far more uh, deeply than I had really thought of before. Sometimes going 200 miles inland using the rivers in order to perform their raids. Uh, they almost certainly also deposited their DNA in these parts of the country as well. And that's where very likely some of my, uh, my ancestry may come from. So we have this incredible uh, resource available to us, these, these baptismal records that my cousin has found. And they actually date back to the earliest ancestor that we've been able to find uh, in my direct lineage, who was born probably about 1650, from what we can tell. Wow. Because we know that he was married on a very specific day, because we have that that marriage uh, record in the church, uh, which was uh, 1687, I believe. So we think he was born sometimes around sometime around 1650, because we believe this was his second marriage. And this uh, this gentleman Philippe would be kind of the uh, the Adam to my family, if you will. He he's the part that we can definitely definitively say this is where the Brickmont line starts. Huh. So he goes back to my seventh, he is my seventh great-grandfather. Wow. And we, we can see the direct lineage uh, going for the next several hundred years. Uh, there is another rather notable member of the family who was born in the 19th century uh, in around, again, the 1850s. Uh, this is Jean-Baptiste Bricmont, and he was, uh, he was actually uh, a weaver. Uh, him and all of his children uh, worked the loom. Uh, which was a really big in-house industry uh, in the 18th and, uh, and 19th centuries. Hmm. Uh, and he saw pretty much the, the heyday of, of you know, loom making or loom working uh, and weaving. And he saw the process become almost completely and totally automated as well. So his whole profession was pretty much kind of wiped out in his lifetime. And his children, who were all apprentice weavers... Uh, who had to be very strong to do it, keep in mind. These weaves, these looms were huge. You think of cloth production, you traditionally think of actually women being associated with it, but at this time it was almost strictly men because of the, the sheer size and complexity of the contraptions, and they were very, very... Uh, they need, required a lot of upper body strength in order to use them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he, he was a, a master uh, loomer, if that's a word. Who knew, right? That kind of... Sure, p- p- took me for a twist, but apparently Brickmonts have always been very good with contraptions and uh, mechanical devices and what have you, as you'll find out in a minute. Uh, but his son, Francois, was the father to my great-grandfather, Clement. And Clement was a really interesting person, because Francois picked up the trade of bricklaying. He never took on the whole uh, trade of the loom because by that time the loom had been pretty much an automated process and, and weaving. And was, this is around, was, the, the, around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. Yeah. So by this time, he just kind of had to find a different profession. Uh, and with that, he found bricklaying. And all of his children took on, male children, took on the profession of being bricklayers as well. Ironic, considering the last name is Brickmont, uh, which... Its literal meaning in French, anyhow, is mound of bricks, essentially, so brickmont. So Clement was a, a really superb mason, and his skills were brought about uh, at a very, very young age. By the time he was 20, he had left Belgium and actually made his way to Europe because, or made, excuse me, he made his way to England because he wanted to learn English and he wanted to, to pick up the language and see what else he could, he could do with it. Uh, he also wanted to travel the world and ended up actually traveling to South Africa, where he spent 
a considerable amount of time with his best friend Pierre. And him and Pierre were business partners. They went around working on a wide variety of different structures, including stone bridges. Hmm. So my, my great-grandfather had designed several stone bridges. And as the story tells us, in the beginning of the Boer War, uh, in 18... Or excuse me, this would be the Second Boer War. So this was around 1897, uh, I think. 1898, around there. He had to end up fleeing the country uh, for fear of, of, you know, being captured and killed. Uh, hmm. And so as he was leaving on the railroad, you know, via railroad, via the, the trains, he was actually stopping and then blowing up the very bridges that he had built to prevent their, uh, their being pursued. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we also have a story of him being invited by Pierre down into Australia uh, to do some work down there. And my, my great-grandfather spent, you know, some time in Australia, not very much, but uh, enough to leave a lasting impact on him. And he was absolutely delighted with Australia. He wanted to live there. Hmm. He wanted to come back. But he, he never had the opportunity, never made it back. Uh, instead, his final tr voyage and trip, at least in terms of his early youth and his, his adventurous days, uh, ended up in San Francisco. And that is where he met my great-grandmother, Marie Barron. Uh, the barons had come over a short time before that. Uh, they were from southern France. And the barons had set up and established uh, a nice little foothold here in the Bay Area. He met her in, in San Francisco. The two of them were married. And my grandfather and his brother Francis were born in San Francisco. Unfortunately, the, uh, the hospital that they were born in burned down just a year after my grandfather's birth. Now, my grandfather was born in 1905, and so you can imagine the reason why. Oh, of course, 1906. The Great Earthquake. Earthquake, yeah, which caused uh, a tremendous fire, too, and pretty much burned down most of the city. Yeah, the Great Fire of San Francisco destroyed vast majority, about 80%, 90% of the city. It was one of the first disasters where there was over $1 billion of damage. And this is $1 billion of damage in 1906. Yeah, extensive. Yeah. So what I find fascinating is just a few months before the earthquake... My great-grandmother had complained about living in San Francisco and wanted to live somewhere else. So my grandfather, my great-grandfather found a property right here in San Jose. Uh, you may know it. It's called the Prune Yard now. But hmm. uh, it wasn't back then. It was the family estate. Uh, and he bought Get 10 out. acres. Yep. He bought 10 acres right in around where Whole Foods is. <laughs> You're right, kidding. No. Right, pretty much right smack dab between San Jose and Los Gatos. So right in that Campbell that, that all used to be your family's land. Not all of it, but 10 acres of it was. Uh, and he, he built a home. He built it because he was a brick mason, and that's exactly what he did. He also built uh, chimneys. That was his big specialty, chimneys and towers. Uh, and so after the 1906 earthquake, he was thought to have been very pleased with himself because uh, the vast majority of the chimneys he built did not fall down in the earthquake. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, they were destroyed by fire, but that wasn't his fault. <laughs> it was just the earthquake part. In fact, my grandfather, believe it or not, has a memory as a baby being held in the hands of my great-grandmother and seeing the sky glow orange in the distance from that massive fire that was San Francisco. And keep in mind, there was no light pollution back then. You know, there was no electricity pretty much in, in, in the area. So he, he could remember this as a child. Uh, it took my... Actually, my great-grandfather was in San Francisco during the earthquake. He was staying in a, in a boarding house there, and he was, uh, he was awoken at about five or so in the morning by this tremendous shaking. His bed was jumping across the room, and he made it just out in time to, uh, to see pretty much the building set on fire. 
It took him a week to get home. Wow. He had to walk home from San Francisco to San Jose. Oh, Jesus. Which is... That's 55 miles. Something like that. I think it's a little more than that. But this was all in a time before, you know, they were really well-established, you know, forms of uh, transportation. The trains were completely out. Uh, He could not get on any carriages because people were trying to flee the city for you know, refugee camps nearby and, and to make it down to other uh, homesteads where their families were or what have you. Sure. So it was just total chaos. And my great-grandmother had no idea if he was dead or alive until he walked up onto the front door. That's crazy. That yeah. is so crazy. So pretty much the Brickmonts are in Belgium and the Bay Area. Like, that seems to be the two. Well, my great-grandfather's also had a brother, and his brother moved to Pennsylvania. Okay. And there is a uh, a sect of the Brickmonts in Pennsylvania that are still there today. Interesting. Uh, But the California Brickmont and the Pennsylvania Brickmonts are pretty much it in terms of the original Brickmonts to America. Now, my grandfather was an absolutely fascinating person as well. And he he was born here, like I said, in the Bay Area. But in the 1920s, they decided they were going to move back to Europe. And my grandfather was 18 years old. He only had a couple of weeks left in high school. But they took him out of school anyway and sold off the ranch, or sold off the orchard, excuse me, sold the house and decided that it was time to go back. Primarily because my great-grandmother missed her family that were over there in France and also my grandfather, or my great-grandfather, who was extremely French, who produced about 200 gallons of wine a year on the family orchard because they grew grapes and prunes. Wow. Decided that his limit that was going to be placed upon him for wine was unacceptable because this is during prohibition i imagine yes this is right during prohibition so and you can only have wine for basically for sacramental purposes mm-hmm. yeah and nobody needs 200 gallons of sacramental wine our communions are pretty big in the catholic church <laughs> don't judge personally me i mean personally so my my poor grandfather who had this amazing childhood here in, in the bay area and loved being here uh, you know, they they had a, this this great orchard with horses that they loved, and you know he they got their first Model T Studebaker that he and his brothers took apart and learned how to drive. Uh, they actually got their licenses in the mail. I still have <laughs> my uh, my great or I have my grandfather's license. That's crazy. He was like fifteen, I think, fourteen or fifteen, and they just sent it to him in the mail. He had initially some difficulty accepting the idea that they were going to be leaving. But he quickly found that uh, he'd be in pretty good when he got to uh, to Belgium first, and then eventually to southern France and Bordeaux, and realized being a six foot two, extremely handsome American was quite to him and his brother's benefit. <laughs> he was quite the ladies' man, as they say. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, he loved to, uh, you know, he, he he was he was kind of a playboy, if you will. He was. Fluent in French. He learned it by speaking in the household. My great-grandmother didn't even speak English. She spoke only French. And his brother Francis and his other brother Clement, they would go out on the town and they'd be dressed up like uh, real dapper-looking individuals, you know? He always had this bamboo walking cane that he brought out with him when he was uh, when he was taking a night out hmm. on the town, uh, partially because it was an excellent weapon, uh, and he had to use it to defend himself sometimes. Uh, he actually got mugged in a bathroom in Paris once. Uh, and used the cane to give the guy a real good lashing. Uh, and the guy, uh, you know, was down on the ground pretty much unconscious. And my, my grandfather was like, no, I'd give you my $5. Thank you. Yeah. And walked out. <laughs> there, there's uh, actually a whole martial art uh, devoted to learning how to use a walking stick as a weapon. Have you seen the ones with the little swords in them? That pull well, there out? are those, of course, yes. But those are basically just for fencing. Now, there's actually a whole art form you can learn toward dueling with walking sticks. 
uh, and literally how to beat someone's brains in with the right stroke of a of a walking stick. So, Are you being serious? I'm being dead serious. Wow. I wonder if my grandfather started that. It's, well, it not. derives itself from the 19th century. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, maybe not that far off. Yeah, not too far away. But my grandfather, he was a, he was a mechanic. All of his brothers were mechanics, master mechanics. And he had this Bugatti that he loved that he used to drive all around France and into Switzerland and Italy and all over the place. I mean, he was he was taking up the the life. That we this have, is your great grandfather. This is my gran- grandfather. This is your grandfather. Okay. I have so many stories. I just go on and on and on. But uh, he he and the family opened up a, a small auto shop in Bordeaux called the Universal Garage, and it was one of the first auto shops in Bordeaux. So, uh, as you can imagine, there wasn't a whole lot of competition, and people from all around would would come to visit him. Uh, some pretty famous people, in in, in fact. Uh, there was a uh, a famous dancer in the 1920s who was notorious for being killed by her long scarf. She was uh, driving in her car, and her scarf that she would wear, these enormous scarves that would be like, you know, 15, 20 feet long, got caught in the wheel. And, and strangled her. And basically. strangled her. Uh, her brother came in and had his, his car repaired by my grandfather, and he was so delighted to speak to someone who actually spoke English, someone he could talk to, uh, that he invited him to their chateau in, in southern France to, to visit for the weekend. But my, my grandfather never took him up on the offer, I'm afraid. Oh. Um, stories like that just kind of permeate throughout my, my grandfather's youth uh, and, until around 1935. And that's when he could see bad times were coming. And he was seeing what was going on in Germany. In fact, he was listening to what was going on because my great uncle, his brother Francis, was uh, a huge ham radio fanatic. Uh, he built and designed his own radios. Uh, he built this massive, huge radio tower that they built on top of the garage uh, so that they could they could pick up all the radio from as far around as possible, huh. and uh, they were hearing all these you know reports from England. They were hearing the reports from France, and they didn't like what they were hearing. My great uncle Clement thought Hitler was a clown. Thought he looked like Charlie Chaplin, like he looked like a joke. Well, actually, that's where Hitler's mustache came from. Yeah, ironically of all yeah. things. But he, he thought you know this guy's not serious. Nothing's going to come of this. My, at least so the legend goes, right? Yeah. So. My grandfather, however, had other ideas and said, you know what, forget this, you guys are crazy, if you want to stay here in France, I'm going back to America, and he left, uh, and returned to America in 1935, after having a really awful trip back over across the Atlantic. He was horribly sick, uh, even though he was very buddy-buddy. Uh, everywhere he went, he made friends really easily, so he made friends with a bunch of people, let him in the engine room and all that stuff, and let him you know, kind of have some fun, uh, but he was, he was done with it. Sure. Uh, came back here to the Bay Area. Maybe that's why you don't like boats. Maybe. It could be. It could be instilled in me. There's another good reason why I shouldn't like boats, so I'll tell you about it in a minute. But he came back to America via New York uh, and bought a car with a California uh, license plate on it. Some guy had drove it out from L.A. and traded it out and left it uh, left it there in New York. So he thought, hey, this is a perfect car. It's already got a California license plate. I'll take that one. Seven days later, drove across the United States and made it back to, to California, back to the Bay Area. Hmm. Uh, he met up with his his aunt uh, on the Baron side of the family, right? So his father's no, sorry, his his mother's side of the family, and they owned a hot spring here in Los Gatos. It was a mineral hot spring resort uh, in Los Gatos. Yeah, it was called the the Baron Hot Spring Resort, and he went to start working for them, building cabins and fixing up all the all the rooms that they had there. It just so happens that my grandmother who was recovering from tuberculosis, was ordered to be on uh, bed rest. 
And her sister, Teresa, thought, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if you went to this resort? It's right nearby. You can stay there pretty much as long as you want. I know of this place because I, I work as a housekeeper for this person who goes there all the time. And they, they love it. So she spent three months at this resort right at the same time that my grandfather got to the resort. And let's just say I exist for a reason. <laughs> gotcha. They, they, they fell in love and they met each other there. Uh, the rest of the family who was back in Europe, uh, Francis, his older brother, came out in 1937. He was actually chaperoning for uh, my grandfather and his now fiance, my grandmother, Marie, because they were meant to escort them wherever they went off, you know, like they went on a trip to Yosemite. He got paired up with uh, her sister, Teresa, and the two of them ended up getting married in 1940. Huh. So uh, my father's cousin, Odette, the one who put all this together, is their daughter, and they are far closer cousins than most people are, at least genetically, because this is a, a pairing of a brother and sister and brother and sister. Does that make sense? I not mean, in a creepy way, not not in a banjo playing way, but in like a in, in that my grandmother and her sister married my grandfather and his brother. Right. Yeah. Two so, totally different families, but they were brother sister pairing. And so basically it brings it down into instead of three or four genetic no uh lines it's two pretty much yeah yeah which is crazy and cool it is very cool and a little weird but that's fine (laughs) it it, it sounds weird but it's it's it's, really not not weird no i i I get it it's just it's rare you don't hear that happening very much right so then so because we're we're a little short on time here so what's uh where does it take it to your grandfather or to your from to your father i'm sorry well, r- real quick, before okay. we do that, I have one last kind of coming to America story that, that kind of needs to be told because it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, the rest of the family, like I said, was living in France currently, right? And they stayed right up until 1940. So they were there on the very last ship to leave France with Americans on board and other, other foreigners that were, that were going to be fleeing. They had sold the garage. They had sold all of their property. They had sold everything for a minuscule amount of money. And they made it out on the, uh, the very last ship, which was the SS Washington. This ship was ordered to declare an American flag upon its mast and to declare it at full mast so that it was completely visible. Its job was to transport not just Americans, but whatever refugees wanted to get out. Because, you know, the children had been born in America, and they were also American citizens. They got passage, even though they got literally right up to the last minute. They almost did not get on that ship. They were ordered to go first to Portugal, pick up refugees there, and then go up into Glasgow, and then from there to the Americas, or to America. So, as they were leaving Portugal, they got stopped by a U-boat. Really? This was in the dead of night. The U-boat flashed its... Signal lights. The flashes were, you are going to be torpedoed. You have 10 minutes to evacuate your passengers. My family was in a tizzy. They were all rushing towards the lifeboats. Everybody was loaded on them. uh, And they were just sitting there. The lifeboats weren't doing anything. The captain continued to flash back. Americans. 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 And hoping that the the German captain would heed his orders, because America had not entered the war at this point, point, and not think of this as a a ruse, uh, and not torpedo the boat, at least until sunup, so they could see the American flag that was being flown. Because in in the middle of the night in the Atlantic, you can't see anything. So they waited for a couple of hours before the sun finally got up. Any moment, they could have been torpedoed. But they didn't. Finally, the Germans signaled 
our apologies, continue on. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my god, we almost all died. That is wild. Well, they got stopped by a second U-boat. Well, they didn't get stopped by, excuse me, they got within sight of a second U-boat. They made a hard turn, avoided the U-boat, made it to Glasgow, made it to America safe. But they almost didn't. They almost got torpedoed and, and died. But that's how the California Brickmonts finally made it back to America. And that's where my my father, who, you know, is, uh, is a very different th- person <laughs> from these stories that I'm telling. My father and I are more of the reserved, more of the intellectual crowd, if you will, whereas my grandfather, like I said, was a master mechanic. Uh, he ended up getting a job at Normington's, which is a, a well-known auto mechanic shop here in uh, in San Jose, and he worked there for his entire pro- professional career, so from 1939 hmm. up until he retired in, in the late 80s. Wow. Uh, he, it's a long career to have, too. Extremely long career. He was um, a really incredible person. His last little piece of fame here in the Bay Area is that he and my grandfather, before they had gone back to Europe, actually helped construct the Carmelite Monastery. And the Carmelite Monastery here in Santa Clara uh, has this absolutely gorgeous bell tower and all these beautiful adobe work, and that just happened to be my great-grandfather's specialty. So they constructed the bell tower, and my grandfather, who was a 10-year-old apprentice, was up on scaffolding about 60 feet high uh, working on the Carmelite Monastery. So I have so many stories that are just a wealth of information to my, me and my family, and they're so fantastic to read through. And I've been going over this document that I have for hours, and I'm just learning so many incredible facts that, uh, that I didn't already know. It just blows my mind. I'm so lucky. Going back to our first episode for a second, we, we said something about history, right? History is a story, one big story, and we have to think of it like that to really understand it. And there's no better way for us to learn about history than to see how our lives are connected to it. And the best way to do that is to learn about your family. We've seen from my family, we've talked about the potato famine. We've talked about the Korean War. We've talked about, I mean, surely both, all four of my grandparents lived through World War II. Sure. As on, kids. Yeah. I mean, on my end, you know, everything going on in Europe, like the Napoleonic Wars up into the Second World War, the Boer War in South Africa. Exactly. Uh, my my grandfather or my great grandfather actually traveled through the Suez Canal on one of his return trips to to America. The Great Fire and Earthquake of 1906. Right, the San Francisco Earthquake, right. Yeah, you name it. I mean, These are major events in history. And I guarantee you, folks, if you were to go out there and do some research of your family, you will find how your family is tied to one of those major events in yeah. history. And if you can locate, particularly if you are uh, of European descendants, if you can locate the the town or region that your family is suspected to have originated from, look at the church records that are still in existence because you can find them. And you can find uh, probably better than you will birth records, baptismal records, and death records, uh, and marriage records. And these will help pinpoint who these people are. You can piece it all together. My family was able to do it. I'm honest, and I know that you can do it. On Absolutely. Your and, of course, there's a wealth of genealogical sites that you can go to. They cost money, of course. There's a few that are free but not very easy to use, unfortunately, uh, where you can look up some research there. The Hall of Records, you know? Every city has one. You can go and look them up. And you can also send requests from other ones. Like, if I really wanted to, if I had, we had more time, I could have contacted Carrie. 
in Ireland and uh, gotten some records done, but it would have been too expensive and it would have taken like six weeks to produce a single birth certificate. So it's, it's shy of me flying to Ireland <laughs> to look it up, which is obviously not going to happen. That's the best I could have done. So folks, I encourage you to really do that. I, I agree with you completely. Your Your family's history is such an important part of what makes you who you are. And I can guarantee you, you'll find um, information that you just didn't know existed. And please reach out to your elders. Reach out to people who may not be around all that much longer because they have amazing stories yeah. to tell. Listen to them. Take your iPhone out. Record them. If you do this, I guarantee you it will benefit you one day in the future. Because look what came from just some interviews of my grandfather in 1968. Look where we are now. This 120-page right. document. You know, Obviously, there was other contributors to that, but that's a huge part of what totally. I have in front of me. And there are organizations that are devoted to this. I mean, the Sons and Daughters of the American Revolution, their whole organization is devoted to tracing your family history to see if you were related to one of the, the people who were involved with that. Yeah. Uh, and most people in America are, I think, through some marriage or through some connection like that. And their job is just to preserve sure. that that culture, that knowledge, uh, that history of where your your ancestors fought. And certainly it can be difficult depending on where you are in the world because not everyone has the same record keeping, not everyone has the same preservation of records, but certainly try. At least try. Even if you think you're not going to have any results, I bet you'll be surprised by what you'll find. Um, this time I will say, no, take our word for it because the the uh, sources of these are pretty reliable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we, 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 we tend to know what we're talking about. Here. Yeah, I, I think in this case we can definitely call ourselves authorities <laughs> yeah. on this. Um, or people who we pretty much, we trust pretty well to know that they knew what they were talking about. Exactly. If you have a, a relative who has said something, who has done something interesting, or if you're connected to anybody major in history, let us know. And of course, you can do that through our Twitter accounts. Uh, I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at the Brickmont. And through our company Twitter at Nerdonomy. Uh, of course, through our emails and through our websites and all those wonderful different ways you can contact us. And even if your relative is not exactly well known, take Sharon's point. You know, the person who sent us this email that kind of got this whole thought process start, started. You don't have to have a famous person in your family tree to have someone who's interesting. So if you have a story that you want to share, just something that one of your relatives did that you think is really amazing, also please share it with us. We want to hear it. There you go. Sir, this has been really interesting. Isn't uh, it, though? That we, use, we use the word interesting a lot. We're, we're best friends at this point. We know a lot about each other, but it's kind of cool to even learn more of the interesting facts yeah. about where our families came from. So... It's been it's been fun. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I, you know, I, I feel even more connected than than I have before. So I, I appreciate yeah. that, sir. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. We want to connect with you. We 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 thank you so much for this past year, for giving us this opportunity to come and being able to to share so much interesting information with you every day. We hope that you found this to be uh, kind of rewarding, kind of a, a little prize, if you will. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, to get sentimental for a moment, we. We kind of didn't know where this was going to go when we started this a year ago. We just thought it was going to be a fun little thing. And I remember Eric and I talking about, so how are we going to do this exactly? And I said, well, you know, we'll figure out a topic. And, uh, I mean, you and I are pretty good talkers. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what we did. We just sat down in front of the mic and talked. And to be honest, that's kind of how our episodes go. We just yeah. find a way to make it work, which is really something I do not recommend you doing if you're going to do your own podcast. It just happens that Eric and I have a very good chemistry with one another and we communicate very very well but to say that we were able to find that on the first go 
um, is extremely rare, and I'm grateful for it. As am I, sir. So, folks, we're going to get out of here because it's uh, actually very late right now. Uh, probably not to you guys when you're listening to this, but uh, I'm tired. tired. Yeah, yeah. we got yeah. work in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> Until next time, stay nerdy, and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. <laughs>